in health care reform. If I recall, Jay, a few years ago you spoke on stem cell issues. Yeah, yeah. So we're moving a little away from stem cell issues to public health. That's great. Thank you. Um, the, uh, I want to talk to you today about the biggest uh, ethical issue in uh, bioethics today, which is the ethics of healthcare reform. The, our plenary speaker spoke about a very interesting case, and gee, that was nice, uh, uh, but it affects very few people. Healthcare reform is affecting millions of people within this country, and uh, it is an issue that cries out uh, for justice, dignity, and stewardship, and those issues I want to take up today. Uh, for those of you who are looking for a tightly argued, logical uh, ethics lecture, you can go to the other sessions, because I'm not going to do that. This is, besides our chairman, I don't think there are too many formal ethicists here, so I'm going to try to do this uh, as more of an intuitive talk uh, when we talk about uh, uh, bioethics. This is why I think it is the most in place. And the nation is feeling more anxious and vulnerable. Americans fear the unexpected could strike at any moment, devastating themselves and their family. And they're not talking about terrorism. That is why they want to try to get health insurance. Huh? Justice is uh, talked about, and if those of you who read the President's Council on Bioethics, uh, Norm Daniel and others have talked about distributive justice, and this gets us into big political issues because half of us here think that we should have affirmative action and distributive justice and half of us don't. I don't think justice is that hard. I think there's a huge amount of injustice in the current healthcare system in the United States. And so I don't think that we have to uh, look real hard to find that. And I'm going to talk about one blaring example that uh, I see. Well, who are the uninsured in this country? We uh, the latest Kaiser figure, I think, is 49 million. They're growing. They're a heterogeneous group. There are some people who are just young people, like my son, who has a very low probability of having health problems. He works in a startup company. And guess what? He's, quote, uninsured. Now, unless he has something devastating happen to him, he's likely to do okay without health insurance. There are those who are, who have, are older, who people who have chronic health problems who can't get it, but primarily, the uninsured in this country are working poor. 85% of those who do not have health insurance either are in a family with somebody working full-time or part-time or uh, are uh, working themselves. And many of those uh, uh, are not able to get it through their work or any other thing. They actually, the economic facts have really got us at this point. If you, have a, if you want to hire somebody at... What used to be, I know that uh, the minimum wage just went up, but if you look at the old minimum wage, it's about 12000 a year if you work 40 hours a week. Healthcare policies for a family, if you try to purchase them, average about 12000 a year. Okay? So you work, you pay your healthcare benefits, and you live on nothing, right? Or if you try to get somebody and you try to hire that at low that level, that's what makes healthcare so uh, difficult for the, uh, those who are poor. Well, how do you do it? How do you obtain health care? Well, you can go to free clinics, and we have free clinics in our city, uh, or you can try to go to private doctors and pay out of pocket. Well, as you know, that doesn't take long to exhaust that, particularly if you're poor. Um, you can go to an emergency room, and they have to treat you by law, and if it's an emergency, they'll take care of the condition, but they don't, by law, not have to send you a bill. And in fact, this is a source of 60% of uh, bankruptcies in this country are due to health care bills. 
Many of those who declare bankruptcy have health insurance. It's just inadequate. So, um, in, in, there is a program for the poor called Medicaid, which varies from state to state. In the state of Louisiana, to get regular Medicaid, you have to be below 17% of federal poverty levels. That is a few thousand dollars a year. That's about a thousand dollars. Come on. You're going to live on that much a year? That's what you have to have. You can also uh, get Medicare and lie about how much your income is. You can work for cash. And I have patients that do that. Uh, you can find a low-income job that will give sufficient needs to meet your family needs and provide health care. Unfortunately, that option is not much available. Well, welcome to my world. I work at Earl King Long Hospital. Uh, I uh, li take care of poor people. I take care of prisoners. And this is the irony that so many of our people face. Um, the particular district of Louisiana in which my hospital is located contains most of the state prisons. So I am the cardiologist for most of the state prisons. Uh, this is a convicted felon. He's actually not my patient, but I have, I have several murderers in my practice. Um, and it's, the interesting thing is that they all have health coverage. And it relates to a 1976 decision of Estelle versus Gamble, which stated that you have to, if you have a prisoner, you have to give them adequate health care. The elementary principles established in government's obligation to provide medical health care for those who are punished by incarceration. It basically relates, and you can read the rest of it, that if you don't do health care for these people, that is equivalent to cruel and unusual punishment or torture and lingering death. Well, since that time, there's been plenty of litigation about it, and some of my patients have been involved in litigation. There's actually defined by uh, legal uh, decision what constitutes adequate treatment of HIV, hepatitis therapy, which is really quite expensive, uh, and renal transplant has been done in patients who are on death row. Why? Because you stay on death row for about 10 years. Standard of care would be that you would receive a transplant if you were on dialysis. Uh, the, one of the most controversial things was the heart transplant to a convicted felon. Actually, he wasn't a murderer. He wasn't on death row in 2002 in California, which was uh, you may have seen in the uh, press. It's actually a growing problem for the prison system. They would like to release these people. And one of you may ask the question, yes, indeed, I've had patients who are prisoners who deliberately violated parole so they could get back into prison and get their health care. So here's a convicted felon, serial murderer. He has health care. This is a patient who gave me permission to show his picture. He's the pastor of a small church. They pay him $500 a week. He's a retired businessman. He's trying to do good works, doing wonderful work in the community. Who has health care? Is there an injustice here? I think it's pretty obvious. I hope it is to you. And if we're going to do that, we need to supply a minimal health care for everyone in this country. There are too many injustices. The second issue I want to talk to you about is that of disability. And uh, the, um, I want to start with a case report. The patient I will refer to as RT is a man in his 50s with severe mitral regurgitation. He previously worked in the printing industry, which involved moderately intense physical labor. He was clearly functionally impaired and was unable to perform his work for over six months because of shortness of breath and fatigue. He had no insurance, but through the Medicaid program, 
we were able to get a special waiver so that he could get his insurance, so he could get his heart surgery, and he did. And I expected him to make full recovery. So I saw him, in, and to my surprise, he told me he did not intend to return to work. He intended to pursue medical disability, which would allow him access to a monthly Social Security check, and in two years, early entrance into the Medicaid program. I tried to persuade him, hey, you're in your early 50s. Uh, you, your medical conditions will no longer justify disability but from the heart. Well, he says, well, you know, I have arthritis too, and uh, it would make work difficult. And, you know, really there's not much demand for printers anymore, uh, so it would be hard for me to go to work. And, really, I didn't get a good education. So he was really thinking of this as an alternative to employment. And that, this is not an uncommon story. So... How about the current disability system and how does it work? There's two parts to the disability system. One is the Social Security disability system and there is a supplemental security income. Actually, it's easier to get the latter, but if you've paid into Social Security, you're automatically to try for that. Um, the uh, criteria is you have to be continuously disabled for five months and you're eligible for Medicare benefits after you've been on disability for two years. So, it was established in 1955, and originally it targeted males who were performing mostly manual jobs, and they were dis disabled mostly because of heart disease and cancer. Since then, there, there's been a much in increased numbers of that, and it's actually uh, now uh, such that um, it has continued to grow, and actually the commonest reason to go on is either mental conditions or uh, musculoskeletal disease. Here is the growth in the uh, uh, system. And uh, one line, um, the uh, bottom line refers to the uh, total uh, number of people who are, uh, percentage of people between the ages of 20 and 64 who are on disability. And you can see that that has steadily risen to be about 4% uh, of the population. This relates to the number who are awarded disability. And it's predicted that that will continue to rise till it will come to an equilibrium in the next few years that about 6% of the population will be considered disabled. Uh, there was a time of reform because of in the 70s they were alarmed at this rapid growth. And at that time, they had instituted four reforms. One is that they limited the disability benefit. They established periodic reviews so that you had to really continue to prove that you were disabled. And they tried to get more rehabilitation and work incentives. And they withheld uh, benefits from prisoners. They were actually sending checks to people who were in prison because they were disabled. Well, I think the history of the disability program can be told by this graph best, which talks about the people who got off of disability. As you can see, the ones who are coming, the, the number who are coming off is falling. And it's falling for a couple of reasons. One is that people are going on disability at a younger age. And uh, secondly, they're going on for conditions that are not so terminal, like cancer or heart disease. They're going on for back pain and mental disorders and things like that. You get off of disability when you retire. And again, because the age is getting younger, they're less going off because of being retired and less are dying. And interestingly enough, the mental dis medical disqualifications, uh, we had that one peak when they had the reforms. Uh, 
But uh, that uh, came back because there was a public outcry afterwards. And uh, they actually had another reform where they uh, got rid of people who were on it because they were alcoholics and uh, because of drinking problems and things like that. And they were kicked off, but that didn't last. They actually found a way to get back on. So uh, what is true is, is that you really have the chance, if you are poor, to get a significant uh, replacement of your income. And this is one of the reasons that people have the growth of the disability program, that in 2002, if you're in the lowest 10% of income, your replacement in terms of wages, if you go on disability, is 86%. Now, if you're in the highest uh, level of income, uh, like our doctor and uh, leader here, well, he's a Canadian, so it doesn't count, but uh, your uh, percentage of uh, replacement income is only 22%. So my question is, would you act disabled uh, in order to go home and earn 86% of your income the rest of your life? Most who receive current benefits could actually work at some level. I take care of lots of these people. I would not spend a great deal of time elaborating on the process of obtaining disability, but it often takes months to years and claims are denied. Disability industry takes about a half a billion dollars in plaintiff attorney fees. And there are a thousand judges in this country who spend full time on disability uh, uh, claims. While waiting for disability and receiving uh, the majority uh, begin to act to the part of the disabled. Individual with chronic back pain may refrain to cutting his grasp unless his neighbors question his right to disability. And by failing to engage in useful work around their home, these individuals often worsen their medical condition through physical inactivity, deconditioning, leading to worsening health conditions with weight gain, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and heart disease. So that's by living by the rules, they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And even if they could return to work, they, they are unable to do it. I don't have to tell you that Christians have always been for work. They've been pro-work. Uh, Paul said to warn the idle, and Paul said also in Thessalonians, give this rule, if a man does not work, he shall not eat. Uh, this has been linked to the Protestant work ethic, uh, and uh, I think it's an important part of a person's self-worth is to be able to work. If we want to reward people for not working, then I think that the disability system has the potential to degrade a person's sense of dignity and their sense of self-worth and it's part of the health care reform that should be addressed if we address health care reform. Um, my son actually attends uh, a special ed class. You may have met, saw him. He was one of them who was making noise. Uh, and uh, he goes to this boarding school in Columbia, Tennessee. And his uh, special needs children are there. In the basement of the classroom building, there's a workshop where these simple children can wave labor at repetitive tasks such as stuffing bags for advertising. They take five items from five different bins and put them in a bag and seal it. They're rewarded in proportion to the number of bags they fill. The rewards are minimal and certainly below minimum wage, but there is something in this work that gives these children a sense of dignity and sense of worth. They earn some money for this. They get some treats. Their joy in receiving their pay is undisguised on their face. The whole process from the business community thinking of work projects for these children to the, the school staff organizing the work and the children doing the work and being rewarded seems so intuitively beautiful and wholesome that I hope it doesn't need any ethical justification. 
Christians have always been involved in affirming the disabled and weak, and similarly, full restoration of the sick should allow these people, whenever possible, to turn to at least some form of useful work. Anything less than this robs them of their dignity. I'm going to take a little time on stewardship, and that has to do with spending future generations' healthcare resources today. Stewardship has been something that we've heard a lot about in environmental ethics, and now it's coming into medical ethics as well. This is one of my teachers, Robert Orr, and uh, Mellinger is on the uh, President's Council. And they have taken into account the fact that in the patients who are in persistent vegetative state, it is possible also to think of stewardship, in addition to the uh, sacredness of human life, to say you can or use or not use certain things such as feeding tubes. So stewardship has become a, an idea. Now, stewardship is important, particularly as we look at what's going to happen in healthcare in this country. Medicare Part A is what we get withheld from our, our, our check, and that trust fund is to pay for hospital care. It pays 80% of usual and customary charges. Well, the trust fund is technically now receiving money back from the general funds, which are paying back money that had been in reserve. This fund will be exhausted in 2019, and then general tax funds will have to do it if it continues to grow at the rate at which it's growing today. Part B is even worse problem. Part B is what you sign up for. Part B is what you sign up for, which pays for outpatient, and it also pays uh, physicians, thank you very much, uh, for uh, their share of it. Now, the problem with it, when they set the, the, the uh, premium at about $90 a month, the problem is it only pays about 25% of the cost. So the rest of this money comes out of the general healthcare fund. And you can see that as it grows, even today, is around 2% of our gross national product. It threatens to uh, grow even more. These uh, graphs, I hope, remind you a little bit of what we saw with global warming. There's a huge problem that we have in terms of stewardship. And it would, it would be something you could say positive if you could say that the more money we spend on each Medicare recipient, we got better outcomes. And actually, this is a graph which pot, plots uh, uh, the uh, measures of quality that Medicare recipients receive versus the amount of money that's re the amount of money that's spent. Now, Hawaii is kind of an outlier here, but Oregon is up here, and they spend about five thousand dollars per Medicare recipient and have pretty good outcomes. Louisiana, my state, spends the most and has the worst outcome. And why is that? It has to do really how much you spend on Medicare it has to do with how many hospitals you have how many specials you have relative to general doctors, and whether you have HMOs and a bunch of other stuff. But it doesn't mean that you get more by spending more. In fact, you actually get, the outcomes usually get worse. This is a projected growth of entitlements. And I hope you can see that. And uh, the uh, Social Security is actually not that bad because although we have more and more of us who are going to be in retirement age, that, that growth is indexed to inflation. Unfortunately, Medicare is not. It's related to healthcare inflation, and that's what's growing so fast. In fact, this was just the, the Congressional uh, Budget Committee. They looked at what will happen to Medicare if we have no, if it just grows at inflation rate. It's not such a big percentage of the gross national product. 
However, if we allow it to continue to grow at the average rate of 2.5% per year, we have something that's clearly unacceptable, 20% of the gross national product being spent on Medicare. So uh, I think that we have uh, uh, an important uh, ethical issue here with respect to stewardship as well because uh, we cannot spend and we should not spend future generations' health care benefits uh, on ourselves. That is just like cutting down trees or burning up forests. So the issue of stewardship has to come into our, our thoughts about health care reform. So three ethical principles. Justice. Christians have always been uh, for justice. That's one of our themes. And a decent minimum level of health care, I think, is important for everyone. Dignity. I think we should encourage rather than discourage work. And most of the disabled can do work. And I mean, there's lots of reasons for that, but we're really being destroyed by that. And stewardship, we have to consider the consequences of, uh, for the future and uh, the wasteful aspect of our current health care system. This is an, all these things are important for health care reform. Can I leave any time for questions? Yes. Thank you very much, Jake. Questions? Please. Uh, my, my wife's a doctor, and we talk a lot about you know, what she sees walking in and walking out every day. And uh, found it's a very helpful distinction to make is between health care and medical care. Mm -hmm. Health care is what you do for yourself. Health care is uh, exercise, diet, not doing stupid things. And that's probably 80% of the people that walk in. Uh, yes, 20%. You know, something random happens, something terrible happens, genetic, whatever. But 80% is things people not taking care of themselves. And it's like me taking that, you know, I'm an electrical engineer. I could take that laptop and smash it to bits. And to try and restore that with the material that's there would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to restore that laptop. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can't do, uh, once you break the human body, it's very hard to fix. And so I think that the real issue and what's driving those rates up is people are assuming that the doctors are going to take care of themselves after they damage themselves. And maybe that's the separation we've got to make. We, yes, we should still take care of people, whoever has something terrible happen to them, but we've got to work on what is on its way in the medical system. I don't disagree that preventative medicine is important, but most of the increased costs have, are, are related in part to some pretty perverse incentives that have been set up in the healthcare. Uh, physicians owning some of these new hospitals that are set up in this country, people who are, it is estimated that at least 50% of angioplasties that are done in this country are done for inappropriate or unnecessary reasons. We're doing huge problems with that. My, my, uh, great aunt who I love, 90 years old, died this last week. Two weeks before she died, she went to the hospital and somewhat against her wishes, she had five stents implanted. Coronary stents cost about 3,000 each, $15,000 worth of hardware, which lasted her two weeks. She went into hospice a week later and died. Nobody took into account the fact that this lady was dying. Nobody took into her child her whole trajectory. Technicians come in, do what they do, and nobody has any concept of stewardship. Right. Uh, 
just if I may add a little bit, we also have a model of what we invent, you know, we're in Oregon, what we call the New York dollar. It goes off, New York becomes rich and famous and powerful, comes back home, she hasn't seen mom for 20 years, that last week in the hospital, do everything for mom. Absolutely. is no object because somebody else is paying for it. And I think that, that leads to the incentive you're talking about. Yes. What, what is the most wasteful aspect of the current system? Probably imaging. 50% uh, of Medicaid, 50% of Medicaid costs now are spent on imaging. And uh, that uh, has, in cardiology, we have always image the heart. Nuclear medicine, now we're doing CTs, we're doing MRIs of the heart. All these were not done before. And what they add is minuscule. I can find a few niche places where they're important. But most of the time, they're just another test that, to be done. Yes? How much of that's driven by liability concerns, though, and the fear of... Uh... That's been looked at. It's not so much liability. They've looked at the whole tort reform, which is probably important anyway, just because, more because it destroyed... I've seen people totally destroyed by malpractice, people who are reasonably yeah. good doctors. But uh, as, the, uh, as far as the actual costs of it, it's, only, it's pretty trivial, but just because it's a $2 trillion budget, you know, and the, and the malpractice costs are only are less than 1% to 2% of that total amount. Yes? Uh, you're advocating universal health care. This is a hot political problem today. What about the illegal immigrants? Should they receive, as Obama presumes, uh, universal health care? You know, that's, that's part of the problem. I think that universal health care, the the big problem for people to swallow in this country is if we have a bare minimum of health care. The amount of money that we spend on prisoners in this country, I have not been able to calculate. The amount of money that we spend on the poor, and we take care of several uh, hundred thousand, uh, I think it's about a half a million people who are uninsured in the state that are covered through another aspect of Medicaid. You don't want anyone to understand all this. But in terms of, we spend about, about $1,500 a year per person that we cover. Okay, how do we do? Do we do a good job? No. Uh, could we do a little bit more? Yes, we could. But if you have sort of a bare minimum around $2,000 or so per person that you're covering, then you can put that in. Now, what you can't have is you can't walk into the doctor, any doctor, anywhere, anytime, and get any tests that you want. You're going you're to have some restrictions on that. But what I'm saying is, if if we can accept that, and we can't have cancer drugs that cost 600000 to 100000 and prolong your life on average four months. I mean, people don't even look at that numbers. They don't even think about those numbers. They just say, well, the doctor said I should have it. If we can do that, if we can have a bare minimum that not only emphasize that, but prevention, then I think it's possible that we could offer that not only to our poor, not only to our insured, but also to the aliens who live among us. I think getting back to the, uh, the first comment that was made, uh, I mean, I'm from a Canadian system, so we're talking a bit different here. But we have costs too. The government has to pay for it. And I think we, people concern on my part in terms of prevention, we have an aging population. Aging means longer life, but also more longer medical problems. We have a younger generation of obesity and other problems, which is causing medical problems in the middle age and younger. So we have a tremendous problem, and I think prevention or education of the public 
whichever side of the border you're from is what's going to be required. And that means societal responsibility and that means stewardship, as, as uh, Jay was saying. Jay, thank you very much. Really appreciate it.